Welcome to the latest edition of the We Belong Here podcast. I'm Frank Nam, your host. And today, uh, in honor of Asian American Pacific Islander Heritage Month, I have two guests here to just talk about you know, their identity, how their Asian American Pacific Islander heritage helps them feel like they really belong and are included, but also the opposite part of belonging is how does that make them feel othered? What are the circumstances that happened? And what do they find joy in, in being Asian American? And uh, we're just going to have a conversation around those topics. And so I'm going to ask my guests to introduce themselves in whatever manner they want to, but I want them to answer this question. What is it about being Asian that you find the most pride in? Like, what are you super proud about? What do you really find joy in, in terms of that identity? And I'll start. So uh, to answer that question, I think as a Korean American uh, and an immigrant, I find the most pride in thinking about the the heritage of the my ancestors, my my mother, my father. They both survived the Korean War. Uh, they're both survivors. They both lost their mothers during the war. And I know that trauma has impacted them greatly. And the fact that they came to a country where they didn't speak the language, they tried to make a living, uh, take care of their two boys, uh, me and my brother. And but just the the joy of like the Korean culture in terms of like this idea of like survivor mentality, pride in their culture, love of language, love of food is something that I really enjoy. And I really love seeing like K-pop, BTS, you know, Parasite, Minari, like all these like things in Korean culture, Korean identity that are kind of getting into the mainstream, which I think is really cool, which I didn't think as a kid that I would see in my lifetime. So I'm really excited about that. So with that being said, I'll have uh, Mari, if you want to start, please. Thanks. Thanks for having me here today. Uh, I'm Mari Harita. I am uh, currently with the Seattle Kraken and One Roof Foundation, and I'm a third-generation Japanese-American. Uh, I'm from Seattle. I've uh, spent my whole life here. And there's a lot about being Japanese-American that gives me joy um, and a lot of pride, and I would say it's an, it's an ongoing journey for me. Um, I wasn't aware early on in my childhood uh, of the experience of Japanese Americans in, well, particularly the West Coast of the United States, uh, until my mom started talking about it and learned that she and 120,000 other people of Japanese ancestry, most of whom were American citizens, were incarcerated uh, during the war because they weren't white, essentially, because they were Japanese, uh, of Japanese ancestry. And um, they were taken from their homes and their jobs and their livelihood and their friends. They were taken, their property was taken from them and they were forced to live in um, incarceration camps uh, for the duration of the war. And um, so that was a really powerful learning lesson for me that I'm still processing. Um, I think what's, what's interesting is, and I, I also have a 16-year-old daughter, and so now my life my view of being an Asian American is really this paradox of their of their lives. And I look at what my mother went through when she was young, and I look through my, my daughter and the world um, that she's growing up in. And um, there's a lot of there's a lot of pain to acknowledge, certainly in trauma, as you talk about. But there's so much joy and hope for the future. And I think because there's so much. Uh, history and, and some traumatic history, you, you acknowledge the joy that much more and you realize that this is progress and you really realize where we can go and how important it is to hold on to that hope. And, and to also, um, just as you said, take great pride in our heritage and who we are and that molds us and forms us and makes, I would say, you know, certainly in my case, I, I think it makes me more interesting. It makes, it makes me try to figure things out and at some different levels. So, um, I, I would say just to sum it up, not 
concisely clearly at all, but but it is uh, my joy from being Japanese American comes from uh, learning about my mother's experience and seeing the strong person she is, and then just seeing my daughter um, and the strong person she is and, and will continue to become. And Mari, you and I actually met when you were at your previous job when I was working with, uh, I was helping out an event with Seattle Foundation. Mm-hmm. So I remember. Uh, yeah. So can you maybe just a little talk about that previous job and what you did there? Sure. I think that's really interesting. Yeah. Yeah. So, uh, so right now I'm the vice president of community engagement and social impact at the Seattle Kraken, our new hockey team and, and then our affiliated foundation app. And pre- previous to this, um, uh, from 2012 to 2019, I was a president and CEO of a nonprofit called Arts Fund, which totally oversimplifying it is akin to the United Way for the Arts and that we raised funds from corporations, individuals, and foundations to support uh, our broader arts sector. Um, and it, it's an organization that was around for about 50 years. And so in the seven years that I was there, um, it was a really interesting time in our community and in our society where uh, the the landscape was shifting, the de- definition of arts was shifting, the population was shifting, and the needs in the community and the role of arts were really were really uh, transitioning in, I think, a very positive way. And so it was a very exciting time to be there and trying to um, highlight how important arts are in community building and inclusion and really in in just every aspect of, of building a society. Awesome. Thank you so much. Um and then we also have our guest, Brian, who actually met through Leadership Tomorrow. So, Brian, why don't you tell us a little bit about yourself? Yes, thank you, Frank and Mari. Um, great to be on uh, on the show with everyone. Um, uh, Brian Surratt, uh, I, gosh, um, I've been in Seattle for a little over 20 years now. And um, when I think about my journey and my, uh, my self-identity, it's it's taken on so many machinations, right? I think we all go through evolutions around who we are and and the context um, in which we try to navigate, we try to survive in, we try to excel in. Um, and I think in many ways, Seattle has um, allowed me to to really um, flourish and recognize all those aspects of my identity and um, identifying as um, uh, a biracial Korean American, African-American man has been uh, really fulfilling. And I, and I take a lot of pride um, in um, that part of my identity. Um, You know, before I came to Oklahoma, uh, Seattle, I grew up in Oklahoma um, and um, and I was actually actually let me take one step back. I was I was born in Korea um, and came to the U.S. when I was five years old. My father was uh, in the military. I met my mother there, um, and um, my I recall my mother making a really interesting decision with my father. Uh, my father had the option to leave the military when I was around around four or five. And to get a job, he was an aircraft mechanic, and he had an opportunity to get a job with Korean Airlines as a, as a mechanic. They were hiring a lot of um, military uh, American servicemen to um, to work as um, you started seeing things in the industry really, really take off in, um, in Korea. But my mother made a conscious choice to say, can't, you know, for the sake of our son, we have to go to America because I think my mother was... 
I think rightfully at that point in time, um, concerned about me growing up as um, uh, not a full, a full blooded, I put that in air quotes, full blooded Korean um, and what that would look like. And we made that decision to stay. My dad stayed in the military, moved to Oklahoma, where uh, my family on my father's side goes back three generations and um and we we lived there and it was interesting you know there's a deep um african-american culture in oklahoma and you know it's been really interesting to see uh, we're a few days away from the the hundredth year commemoration of the um, um black wall street race massacre um and um, and how prominent that community was. And my family has, has ties to that community. I grew growing up in, in Tulsa. And, um, and so that part of my family is very, very rich and textured and a lot of history tied to, to the land. And at the same time, my mother, I, I tell people like, you know, actually there were Korean folks in Oklahoma, not a whole lot, not a whole lot, but there were definitely Korean folks there. And, and my mother made it a point. You know, she never you know, ran away from that identity. She never um, instilled that me and my brother, that we were somehow less than. And, you know, I grew up in a Korean church, um, uh, the first Korean Baptist church of Tulsa, Oklahoma. And um, and I cherish those those um, that time growing up because, um, you know, my my parents, they weren't you know, race conscious in, in, in kind of our, in our kind of contemporary uh, terms, they just lived, they just lived their lives and how they felt to be authentic. They worked hard. My dad, you know, was an aircraft mechanic, as I said, who worked for American Airlines. And my mom was the ultimate, you know, kind of stereotypical immigrant who hustled and, I can't remember how many jobs she had, how many businesses she opened up from a subway shop, a donut shop. And my brother and I, we worked in every one of those places. And I, I, we violated a lot of labor laws. I'll tell you that, you know, growing up, uh, but we, you know, but, but she was the shining example. And, and when, you know, your question, Frank, of like what brings me pride is, um, and that identity of being a Korean American is the the resiliency, the hope, the sacrifice, the the willingness to invest in the now without any guarantees of success, but you see your children and the folks in your community as um, the out the outcomes of what you put in and. Um, and I just think about the decisions my mother made to marry my father, the decision my mother made to leave her home country, to leave, you know, to learn a new language, learn how to drive, learn how to navigate conservative Oklahoma where, you know, she was isolated and she would literally have to drive to Oklahoma City or to Dallas, Texas to find Korean groceries. And and but she she did it. And we watched that. And so. I take so much um, pride in in her example of you know the 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 classic immigrant story of we've got to um, there there's always hope there's always struggle but there's always hope and um, you know the, the second part of your question around um, 
you know, we can talk about it more later, but just, you know, just, you know, where now that transition from Oklahoma to Seattle. And I think, you know, Mar, you know, Mar, you being a third generation Seattleite, I think, I think there's something unique about the Asian American community, API community in Seattle. There is this, um, I think it's part of the history, you know, the multi-generational piece, like there's the, the, the pan-Asian American collective, this, this intentionality around political activism, social engagement, community. When you see, you know, Japanese Americans, Chinese Americans, Filipino Americans, that, that first kind of wave of Asian Americans really coalescing. And when I came here, that community um, welcomed me. Um, they never questioned me um, and my identity. Whereas, oftentimes, because you know, ob- you know, you know, we're, obviously we're not on TV, but I do not look Korean at all, and I and I, it, I think it trips people out if I say the few words of Korean that I know, and 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 uh, it 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 definitely trips me out. But when I came to Seattle, I think the mindset of of a Pan Asian um, view of the world allowed me to enter into the community and be embraced by the community. And that's, and that says something about, about Seattle and, and again, deep pride in, in who we are and where, where this community has been. Brian, I think that uh, as you uh, get older, cause I've known you for maybe like seven years or so, mm-hmm. six years, uh, you actually look more and more Korean uh, as you get older, <laughs> especially with the hair. You know, you kind of look like a character and like old boy right now, a little bit. I love yeah, it. Yeah, I yeah. love it. I love yeah, it. Yeah, I love yeah. it. No, it's yeah. it's 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 funny because um, uh, my my daughter. I have a fourteen year old daughter now, and um, and she looks spitting image like my mother, and it's it's, it's almost frightening. That's like, Whoa, that's trippy. Like, Whoa. Yeah, yeah. So, wow, it's a uh, it's, it's interesting, right? Because both. Like Murray, like uh, Mari, like you said, that you have been here for three generations. Uh, you're an immigrant, Brian, in terms of like you came here when you were five. I came here when I was three. But even though our generational history in this country is vastly different, the need for resiliency in all our communities is, uh, I think, a touchstone for all uh, uh, pan-Asian folks, right? And so – and a lot of that is under like this like feeling of – Asians will always be like the constant foreigner, right? No mm-hmm. matter how many years and roots and generations you have here, you could have been a Chinese laborer on like, you know, the Mayflower and be like, Hey, I came on the Mayflower and people will still be like, well, are you really, where are you from? Mm-hmm. <laughs> it's like, mm-hmm. I have like eight generations back into like, mm-hmm. but they would still always ask, where are you from? And I think that's kind of interesting a realization that I've had at least uh, growing up. Um, We've kind of started diving into this a little bit, right? Because being uh, being a Asian heritage in this country, and I should also note to my listeners that at this point in the episode, like I'm actually in Seoul. Uh, I mm-hmm. left America in September of 2020, one to take care of my father, but two to kind of escape the the poor, to you know, and that's kind of like really an understatement, the poor response to COVID mm-hmm. in the United States. And I wanted to go someplace I felt more safe. Mm-hmm. Uh, I left before all the spike in Asian, anti-Asian American crimes and hate mm-hmm. crimes started uh, popping up. And watching that from abroad has been really interesting for me because being in Korea, like the only place in America that I've ever felt like I could be anonymous is Hawaii, mm-hmm. right? Because there's like just, you know, AAPI folks everywhere, mm-hmm. right? 
and it just felt so comfortable there. But Korea, like I'm so anonymous. Like I get on a train, I get on a bus, I look at posters, uh, government, politicians, actors, CEOs, they all look like me. There isn't this sense of like, you know, other, you know, you know, they can tell when my Korean comes out and have a little bit of like that American like uh, accent that they're like, Oh, uh, are you, uh, where are you from? <laughs> it's like, I'm born here, but I was, I grew up in the United States and half the people are really interested in that. And other half of people are like, Oh, that's nice. <laughs> so, which is fine, you know, but, um, there is a lot of like belonging that happens, right? The, be it the churches, be it uh, families, but there's also a lot of othering that happens in terms of like, there's belonging, there's othering, there are two sides of the same coin. And I would love to hear from you both about, you know, when did you feel like you were most, like you felt like you really belonged within your identity? And when did you feel like you most, you really felt like you were an outsider because of your identity? And you can take either paths or both paths. But uh, like Mari, why don't you start? Yeah, no, thanks for that question. Um, it's interesting. I think because of my mom's history and also my dad's, my dad was not incarcerated because, you know, there was that time when you could choose to move voluntarily and leave all your stuff. And then if you didn't move by a certain date, the government took you away. And, you know, a lot of the families didn't understand that concept because it was kind of crazy. So uh, my dad's family moved before they were required to move. So they, they grew up in Moses Lake, but as, as you know, free people. Um, but nonetheless, they were severely impacted, emotionally scarred by the whole experience. And so when they came back to Seattle, they intentionally moved into a very white neighborhood. Uh, they didn't go down back to Beacon Hill. They, and I, I think there was sort of this semi-unspoken but understood thing of like, okay, it didn't serve us well to be different, so let's try to fit in. Um, and so I grew up in this super white Northeast neighborhood and I didn't really know, I didn't really think about race growing up. Um, and I didn't really think about my heritage very much or race very much, uh, until later in life. And, you know, if people would say things, you'd get racist comments, this and that, but, um, I didn't, it, it wasn't constant. Um, it wasn't something I thought about a lot. Until I, I studied Japanese uh, one summer in college, and in that process of studying the language, you actually learn a lot about the culture because you understand why people use certain phrases. You're like, oh, okay. And it, so then I started really digging more into my own um, history, and you know, we talked about early on, like we're all on this journey. And in that process, I began to realize, okay, wait, I'm not. I'm definitely not white. Like you know, and I hang out with mainly white people, and I, this is where who are the people where I've grown up, but you know, I'm not seen as part of the dominant culture because I'm not. And uh, I needed to go through my own understanding of that and, and learning that. Um, and so I think I probably just didn't pay attention to it a lot growing up. And so I really wasn't as aware of, of the othering. At the same time, I think I probably never felt like I totally belonged. I'm always a little bit on the perimeter, but I've become so comfortable in that role that I kind of like it there, you know. <laughs> It's kind of you span different universes, um, and, and I'm okay with that. Uh, so I, I think as I, I got to know my mother's story much better, and and saw just not just that example, but many other examples of um, you know overt racism and, and oppression of different cultures, you can't help but realize, wow, that that could happen to me. I mean, probably not now. And and when my daughter, when she was six years old, I'll never forget it, in the car, eight years old, and we're driving. And somehow she had learned about the incarceration. And she's like, wait, wait, 
She's like, Mom, wait. So Bachan was taken away to camps. And I said, Yeah, you know, you could do the silence. And she just she just said, Mom, could they can they do that to us? Like this fear of, oh my God, is someone gonna come to our door and take us away? And I said, No, don't even worry about it. Got you covered, you know, because I but but I get her fear because as a young person, you're like, like, how can you how can you rationalize what happened in this country? to someone she knows who's alive and as you know, a woman she loves more than anything. So, so I think, um, in that whole experience, I'm aware of being different. I'm aware of being different when people confuse me with other Asian women or one other Asian woman in particular, um, over and over and over again, you know, you realize you're not really seen as an individual. You're seen as an Asian woman that looks in someone's mind or in many people's mind a lot like someone else. And you realize you're kind of more like a part of a group than a person. So, you know, that's a, that's a version of othering. But I don't know. I've never, um, it's, it's what you were talking about. Like the, I, I am so proud of my mother. I am so um, inspired by her story. And I feel really fortunate um, with different opportunities that I've had that like, I don't feel um, fearful or ashamed or afraid of it. I'm aware of it, but not in a way that I feel like beaten down by it at all. That makes any sense. No, that makes a lot of sense. I think um, it's it's so interesting, right? Because I've had friends who are Korean immigrants, grew up in the same town, went to the same church, two kids, an older sister, younger brother, who their parents, you know, demanded that their kids don't speak Korean, never taught them Korean, didn't really eat Korean food at home, uh, raised up in very Western cultures, Western food, Western you know, uh, sports, all the things that like, you know, other kids did in that neighborhood. And they were very successful. Both the kids, I think, went to Harvard and another Ivy League school. The father had his own business. And we always, in our church, we kind of looked at them a little oddly because we were like, how do you not speak? I mean, like, not speaking the language fluently is a common, you know, immigrant thing, but not knowing most of the words at all or the food or it just felt weird to see someone that looked like you, but didn't have the same experience growing up. But I don't blame them for that. That's like a conscious choice that they came to America and they knew that at that point, like a stimulation is probably the way that will help them reach whatever goals that they want for themselves and for their kids. And that's the way America, basically the system has demanded immigrants be right. Like assimilate, but I think the new word that I speak to a lot of uh, folks, especially at the Office of Immigrant Refugee Affairs at the city of Seattle, is the idea of like integrate. How do we integrate our cultures and our whole identity into a, a, a you know, not a melting pot, but actually a, a, a quilt, right? Where all the pieces look differently, but they actually are part of the same piece. And I think that's something that I think about a lot, you know, and I don't know if I'll ever have kids or raise a family. I know, you know, so I know you both have uh, children, you know, but. If I did, I would want them to be fully aware of like their own identity as a Korean person ethnically, but also as an American culturally, and really like get the joy out of both, right? And so the power out of both. So that's something I think about a lot. Yeah, yeah. and I'm sorry, Brian. I don't mean to. I know it's your turn to speak. I just want to follow up on that because you mentioned our kids, uh, and my daughter's biracial. She's she's uh she her father's white. Um, but she self-identifies as Asian. I mean, she knows she's biracial, but she is so proud of her Japanese American her heritage. She's so proud of my, my parents. You know, she loves Asian food. And I, I, to your point of, uh, there was a point where a lot of immigrants felt like, oh my, you have to assimilate. Otherwise bad things are going to happen to you. 
And I am pleased that that is evolving and changing. And I think it's really important for all of us who are here to remind people that you can and must show up as yourselves. And that is really part of what the future of our society and country needs to look like. So when I look at my daughter and how she's living her life and her friends and how they're living their life, like I said, that's what gives me so much hope because she is a, she is so proud of, of her heritage. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. And Brian, you as a biracial person, right? And you grew up in that, that world of being both black and Korean. And obviously, the way you present yourself is more as an African-American man than an Asian-American man. But, you know, I've heard this great, uh, pr- this person once talk about biracial identity as not being half and half, if that's the, the percentage, but actually being a whole and whole, like 100% this, 100% that. And like this idea of like, well, you're only partly Korean, or you're only partly black. Like, it's just like a weird way to like, bifurcate people where you're actually just integrated as like a whole person at both those uh, racialized identities. But I don't want to obviously put words in your mouth. Like what is, what's that been like growing up in terms of like belonging and othering? It's, it's a journey. It's a journey. And I think, um, I remember one of the most kind of traumatic, um, kind of in your face moments and confrontation around, my black and Korean identity was during the LA riots in the early nineties. And because again, the context of Oklahoma, right. You know, conservative America where, um, you know, the racial dynamics are so black or white. You're either, you're either white or you're black, you know, even, even to a certain degree, Native Americans in 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 Oklahoma, you know, that you can pass as white. You know, you're you're it's convenient if you can drop. A, oh, my grandmother was Cherokee or whatever. And the context was so black and white and kind of the racial dynamics. And so, to a certain extent, up until that moment in in American history, um, I was kind of able to float. You know, lived in a predominantly African American neighborhood. But I went to a white, uh, uh, mostly white school, and I went to Korean church on Sunday. And so there was, there was, I was, I was, it was, it was, it was there. It was, it was just, it was just present. Um, but that moment, you know, when you know the 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 riots and the aftermath of the Rodney King verdict, and going into Koreatown and the violence, and I had no idea what was going on and trying to understand all these dynamics. And, and I remember at my church, um, um, which again is another kind of interesting mix of kind of the American, you know, the Korean American immigrant experience. Like you had a group of older Koreans who had immigrated in the sixties, professionals, doctors, lawyers, who, who came and, and established themselves. They were the elders. And then you had um, a lot of Korean women who were married to American servicemen, you know, who came, you know, kind of like my father, who were looking for some memories of home. And then you had a new generation of Koreans who, you know what, you know, we were entrepreneurs. We want to, we want to see what we can make out of this. You know, we're going to um, settle into established communities and, 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 and see what we can do. And so you had you know, this really interesting mix of, of, of communities. And it was the first time that I'd really seen um, kind of an anguish and anger 
towards America from from Koreans um, in, in in that context and um, anger towards society as a whole, anger towards the African American community, um, and for me. Um, there's just a lot of confusion. And so that was probably the first time that I felt like, okay, where do I fit into this conversation? You know, do I have to pick a side, you know, in this, in, in, in this, you know, um, I actually ended up writing my college, you know, um, um, you know, senior paper on the LA riots and, and what it, from a sociological standpoint, kind of what it, what it meant. I, and I flip back to it every now and then it's like, oh man, that was so poorly written. Um, but at the same time, at the same time, I know there are some, there are a couple of nuggets, you know, that, that, that I still think ring true around how every community, right. Every community that has been marginalized in in the American caste system, we all are trying to figure out how do we move up in this caste structure? How do we maintain our dignity? How do we minimize suffering for ourselves and suffering from others? And there's choices that we make. And um, I used to hold um, kind of harsher judgment towards people who made those decisions. Um, but as I reflect back and, I, and as I get older, I was like, I, 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 it's, 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 it's wrong for me to hold judgment for folks who make very rational decisions around, okay, I have to survive in order to make sure that my children continue on. And, and, um, and I just think about, um, you know, and I try to put myself in the shoes of a lot of the, the, the Korean business owners in LA who suffered um, a tremendous loss and frankly, a lot of confusion because they entered into an American racial context that they had no idea, no, no full understanding of, of what it, why were, okay, number one, why did they have, why were their only opportunities to open up businesses were in in really low income, marginalized communities? Um, you know, and, and and why were these communities so um, uh, so much in pain? And and why were um, you know African Americans and and Latinos in those communities angry towards them? And like and just and it became this. You know, so so all the all these this thinking around like this is part of this bigger context. And Frank, you talked about you know these these systems that are that are at play, and and like it or not, consciously or not, we all fall prey to um, this mythology of how do we how do we elevate up into that caste system? And sometimes some people think we have to be able to, we have to step on others to 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 make way and. Um, I've, I don't believe in that. I don't believe in zero sum. Um, uh, and I think, you know, there was a period of time I was, I was really, I was angry. I was angry towards, um, you know, it would, it would vacillate, you know, you know, I'd be angry at a lot of the, the, the Korean shopkeepers who, you know, who perpetuated, uh, anti-blackness. And then on the flip side, I was angry towards, um, uh, a lot of folks who, targeted um these Koreans like these Korean merchants like look they're 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 just trying to survive too that they're caught in this rat race too and so how do we how do we move forward together and 
and it was really interesting. I was having this conversation with some other friends the other night about, um, you know, maybe this is my own, you know, kind of mythology about Seattle that I feel like the, the, the Asian black conflict doesn't seem as present here um, in Seattle. Cause I think it's a function of history. Right. And, and, and the way, you know, I thought about it. it was like when I think about the Chinese and the Filipino and the Japanese who, again, were here since the founding of, of this state, they they kind of understood what white supremacy looked like. Like when when the federal government can take away property from American citizens who happen to have Japanese ancestry, that tells you all you need to know about white supremacy in that context. And you know the the fact that one of the co-founders of the the chapter of the Seattle uh, of the Black Panther Party in Seattle was Japanese American. That's no accident because there was there was there was a common recognition in the struggle. I think for newer immigrant communities, whether they be Vietnamese or Korean, they the 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 understanding of that history may not be as an intimate one, and so there's not so much a disconnect, but just not that 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 grounding in in that history and. And, you know, I, I want to believe that Seattle is unique that way to a certain extent, probably the Bay Area, um, uh, where we don't uh, when we don't have this zero sum mentality where so many um, so many of our systems place black folks versus immigrants and new immigrants get indoctrinated with do not do not become them. And the whole model minority myth becomes such an anti-black um, uh, myth as well. And so um, I think, you know, for me, that journey has of, of, of recognizing we had to flee Korea because my mother was concerned about my well-being in Korea because I was half black, going to growing up you know, my formative years in Oklahoma where I felt great navigating my black world, my white world, my Korean world, and was and then looking at race in America and, and the two communities that I love and identify with and, and the tensions there to coming to Seattle where there is a recognition by the broad like I like it's 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 an arc for me for that journey. And um and when I when I, and I I love Mari your your story about your daughter and how you know she's embracing all these aspects of herself. She'll go through her journey too, right? And and you know Frank, your whole point around wholeness, this half half, you know, again, I, the 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 zero sum nature of that, you know, it 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 feels so limiting and. And I want my daughter, you know, whatever her, you know, her journey looks like, what she does know is that this is part of her history, all of this. You know, my wife is Korean American. And so my daughter presents very, you know, Korean and, um, and, you know, but she knows, she knows her history and, and she'll carry that with her and whatever obstacles that may be in front of her, she she has that to bolster her. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. Yeah. I think the, the LA rise for me was like an interesting, I think my first tearing the, the kind of like the curtain of like just being like, 
Asian American in at that point New Jersey, right? And I was going to a Korean American church, and but we can probably talk about the Korean American church for a while because there's so much to unpack there. That's a whole. Episode. And I love the way you described it. <laughs> yeah, seriously, the '60s, the elders, the professionals, you know, the the you know, especially I met a lot of uh, biracial Korean folks from Tacoma uh, moving into Seattle because of the same thing, servicemen there, service women there that have married uh, other cultures and brought back to like these great churches and great communities in Tacoma, where there's a lot of great Korean food, by the way, for folks that are listening in Washington. Um, and then just the riots, just seeing like this, like racialized black, anti-blackness, Asian, seeing my, my own parents, like in New York City, there's a similar, like very like clash, right? Like of store owners in the Bronx, stoners in like Jamaica, right? And just like, and how they reacted and how they talked about like their black customers, right? And the, the, the weirdly gross stereotypes that they used and having that, you know, and not knowing how to process it, seeing the riots and then coming to Seattle, I felt very similarly. Um, I started coaching at Franklin High School and I was so astounded to watch Filipino kids, Chinese kids, Vietnamese kids, Ethiopian kids, African American kids, you know, just all, and it's not like they're all hang, holding hands and singing songs walking to, to class. There's like fights, there's brawls, there's beefs, you know, but a lot of them don't like they, you know, they understand what it's like to celebrate Ramadan. They understand what it's like to have like a Catholic uh, upbringing. They understand what it's like to be Protestant, to have all these different cultures, religions, identities. And I think Seattle does have that generational history for sure. The Gang of Four is just a great representation of that. Um, but just, you know, I remember talking to one of my, when I worked at Treehouse, there was this woman that worked at the front desk as a volunteer role, didn't need the money, worked at Blue Nile before, but she was 80 something, you know, Chinese American, grew up in Seattle. And she would talk about like, Rainier Avenue, the bowling lanes there when they used to be there and how that was just the spot for people from all over the South End to come in from all, you know, the Japanese Americans that live in Beacon Hill, the South End, African Americans, Chinese Americans, they all just came in, bowled, dated each other, drank, had fun. And I was just like, and for me as an East Coast, and I'm sure you as an Oklahoma person, like, I was like, that doesn't make any sense. I don't understand that. Is that a movie? <laughs> and it's not. And that's the mm -hmm. way I think, I do think Seattle's a little special that way for sure. For sure, yeah. Um, yeah, I, I guess I would love for either of you, you know, to talk about you know this spike in anti-Asian hate. I think Brian is another place where I've been thinking about that because the media has been over-indexing the attacks on Asian Americans. There's an over-index in the media in terms of African Americans attacking Asian Americans, elders, women, and uh, but if you look at the data, the vast majority of attacks to Asian Americans during this time is white men. And so there's another place that media is trying to bring attention, but also like the wrong attention in a way in terms of like, it's not the full truth. And it creates this like another wedge between, you know, uh, communities that have been marginalized. And from here, I just watch it from afar. But I guess for you two living in America during this time period, what has that been like for you? What are some of the feelings you have around it? This actually is going to lead into that what's your project question? Mm -hmm. Absolutely. So, uh, I love the segue. <laughs> well, so as I think you both know, uh, not too long after the Atlanta shootings. Um, I, and I think most people in the AAPI community, you know, you feel something when all this is happening around you and everyone's trying to process, all right, this is, how do I feel about this? What's really happening? How is my family feeling? Um, and so a group of five of us, five women got on a call um, just to talk about, you know, what was happening and how infuriating and hurtful and fr 
frustrating and all these things this was. Um, and then also, you know, is there anything that can be done? And uh, a couple of the women on the call, one of them's a former producer, one of them ran an ad agency, and they're all like just super, you know, badass, get it done type women. So they're like, yeah, we're going to do something. I'm like, okay, you know, <laughs> it's like the end of March. I'm like, well, I guess we're going to do something before API. Uh, Heritage Month. And so we started talking about what that would be. And it started from a place of, you know, anger and hurt. And, 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 but then we talked about there's a lot, there was, there has been a lot going on in the anti API hate movement after the whole, you know, Trump's Kung flu and the China virus and all that. And, and, and so there's, we thought, well, there's, there's a lot of activity around that already. And it's really important and it's a strong narrative, but we don't need to do that also. And so we, we tried to take a slightly different approach and it actually, um, ties I think well into what what you're focusing on Frank and and essentially it's like an anti-othering campaign if you will I mean it's yes it's focused around the API community and API heritage month but the bigger picture is and we talked about that we said who's hurting whom and why is that and, and we didn't go into the whole over indexing that's a whole other thing but we we're just focusing on like why is there so much Brian do you, your point pain in this community and what's causing that and what's causing people to, to other each other and, and then target them because there is no connection and this feeling like that person is so different from me that it's easy to lash out. And so the, the goal of the campaign was twofold. One is, is to reach out to our API family and say, Hey, we see you, we stand with you, be proud, be strong, you know, and, and we're celebrating this together. And the second was to, um, try to uplift voices and, and through storytelling, you know, educate and inform that that Asians, yes, they are not in a box. We're not all one, you know, person. There's multi five plus generations, 50 plus countries, cultures, languages, etc. And we're black and Native American and, and Latina and Latino and, and white. And Asians are just people and people are just people. And Brian, it sounds like you've been reading Isabel Wilkerson's book as well. Um, but, you know, when I was reading that same cast as we were doing this project and the eight pillars of cast, I'm like, yes, you know, it's like Asians aren't all doctors and Asians aren't all this generation and Asians don't all live in this area. And, you know, we're not different. And if we can, if we can start to shed some of those artificial constructs that have been created over time to separate people and control non-dominant communities, I, I, you know, where our hope is, then we start to create that empathy and that connection and, 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 and diminish the violence and, and the separation. And so, you know, we know this is just one small campaign, but we hope like if, if but it's actually gotten, I don't know, in front of thousands and thousands of viewers. So it's like, if a hundred people think a little differently from that, then we consider that a success. We hope it's more than that. But but by telling the stories and showing the faces of Ben Gupta and Doug Baldwin and Lana Condor and saying, these are all Asians, you know, and they're all really different in their story. And um, Susanna, her is Korean-Mexican, you know, it's, it's, it's kind of this amazing story. They're just people. So so that that is our response. I think, uh, Brian, to your point, it's, it's not coming from a place of anger. You said, you know, you were angry for a while. I mean, it's impossible to not be, but then we all have the choice to the, <laughs> both a, the, a Buddhist monk said, and then a study on like brain science said, we have 90 seconds where you can't control how you feel about something. And then after the 90 seconds, if you choose how you respond, which is a real bummer when I found that out, I'm like, wait, I can't be mad after 90 seconds. <laughs> but it's sort of like, how do we respond to this? And, and I think we all know that even though it's sometimes it's easier to just be mad and to blame and to say they're, you know, it's not fair. It's like, it doesn't really make us feel that much better. And it certainly doesn't help. And so if, if we can try to 
pull together and find some positivity and try to do something um, constructive, that, that is, that is the goal of this campaign. And what's the campaign called? Just for our listeners. <laughs> it's, called, <laughs> it's called Our Stories Are Your Stories. There's a website, Our Stories Are Your Stories, stories or hashtag OSAYS, O-S-A-Y-S. <laughs> uh, yeah, and it is, um, there, we've done individual videos of a number of uh, local um, Asian Americans, like I said, of Gupta, Doug Baldwin, Yuji Okamoto, Gary Locke, others. Um, the ultimate team that you know, uh, the world, yeah, world women ultimate team. And we have a launch video and a PSA. And, and then also are, are inviting individuals to share their own stories, send in their own DIY videos. My daughter did one of my mother. Um, and it can be of your story, of your friend's story, of you know a group of your stories. And then we'll have it on our website for a while. And then ultimately, we'll transfer it over to the Wing Loop Museum's digital archives, where it will live on. So um, check out the website. And, and there's a lot of ways you can engage. Yeah. And I don't want to talk for Brian, but I definitely want to post a video to that uh, archive yes. uh, before this, the month ends. We have a few more days. And we'll so we'll do extend that. it. Just, yeah, we'll extend it. Yeah, yeah. It's yeah, not yeah. like we, can, we, can, we have to stop talking about Asian Americans after the month ends, right? Yeah, so, exactly. Yeah, yeah. My, uh, I was talking to my team, at, <laughs> my team at Civic Commons. was like, Frank, you know you can actually post this <laughs> podcast after in June. I was yeah. like, I can I don't let us don't let us just give us a month. Well, come on, bigger than that. Right? Yeah, 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 yeah. Oh my goodness. Um, no, that's, that's, uh, I'm, thank you for switching over to that part of the podcast because I do want to hear the things that you're interested in, the things that you want to use this platform to talk about. And Brian, for you, I would love to share that invitation with you as well. Is there anything that you want to share or promote or talk about? Well, I I just want to just commend, um, you know, Mari and, uh, for organizing with uh, the other remarkable women in our community. I just, um, when I first saw that and I was like, oh my God, this is such a brilliant, such a brilliant intentional act, right? Because we're, you know, our families, our traditions have stories, right? We talk about stories and, and I think too often with our modern technology, we're so passive, you know, and, and we're getting information um, and narratives through social media very passively. But here is actually you're sitting down, you're reflecting, you're um, trying to animate, you're trying to inspire, and you're trying to share a lesson, right? And, and, and you just think about all the, the oral traditions that, that, that make us who we are. Um, I think it's powerful and I'm glad it's going to have a permanent home at the wing Luke. And I hope that people will just keep adding to it. I, and I can, I can only imagine like kind of what, okay, now this is where technology come. Okay. I want to, you know, like, we'll like put some meta tags on it. It's like, oh, I want to learn about sports and Asian Americans or politics, just whatever. And just be able to, to pull up um, all these really amazing people in our community. Right. And, um, I think it's, 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 it's amazing. Um, you know, I think, you know, for me, I don't have a specific project. Um, nothing nearly has a, as, as, uh, impactful as, as, um, our stories are your stories, but I just think about this past year, you know, this pandemic, you know, has, uh, I think we've all had to reflect. We've all had to reflect on, what's our place in this, right? You know, whether, you know, our failure as a country collectively to, to, to say, you know what, 
we're no longer we're we're not going to approach this pandemic as individuals. We're going to try to have a collective response. And you know, to your point at the, at the opening, Frank, like we didn't have a collective response um, to to this. This the notion of public health, the bedrock of public health, is a collective response. We didn't do that. Um, and then obviously the racial reckoning from last summer and. As tragic as that, you know, last summer was, as traumatic as it was, when I saw people from all walks of life really come out and saying and recognizing what last summer was for what it was, was powerful. And in many ways, you know, that full arc that I was talking about when when I saw Asians for Black Lives um being prominent when when I saw white folks from Topeka, Kansas, you know, rallying, you know, West Seattle where I live, you know, we've got the streets were were painted. I like probably there there was something like, okay, c- could this be a turning point? Could this be a marker? You know, if we look back five, 10, 15, 20 years from now, is this was this past summer and the collective movement a part of you know of what we're gonna um, the witness as a fundamental change, it's, it's that story is yet to be written, right? We don't, we just don't know. Um, uh, but as the pandemic progressed and we saw the rise of anti-Asian violence, yeah, there was a deep sadness that, that came about. And, and to be honest with you, a lot of the similar feelings that I had, you know, with, you know, during, during the LA riots, um, obviously different. Um, because the context was different, you know, and to your point, the over-indexing, Frank, it, it, it was it was sad to see because um, um, I think my my sister-in-law, Katie uh, Katie Hong, put it uh, really succinctly: "It's hurt people, hurt people," and um, and too many of us in the Asian American community, too many of us in the African American community have bought in, have bought into, okay, we're going to, we're going to play into this zero sum game and we're going to, um, you know, we, we climb up that extra rung, even if it means hurting someone else. And, and, and I'm, I'm hoping that, that we can overcome this. And I think the positive has been, I think within a lot of my um, Asian American uh, friends and their circles, there's some honest conversations around um, um, our communities, histories around anti-blackness and what we can be doing. What conversations can we have with our parents? Um, uh, what conversations can we have with, with, you know, new members of our community? And I think similar conversations are happening in Afro-American communities around, so, you know, what's our relationship with immigrant communities and, and, um, and where, you know, you know, not so much where is, you know, can we get over this, this zero sum mentality? And, and it's, it's, it's challenging. And, it's, and, um, but I'm glad that people are, are engaging because we have to see it. We have to see, it. we have to acknowledge it because we can't bury it either. Um, and, um, it's been a year. It's been a year. That's an understatement, right? Yeah, it's been it's been more than a year now. It's just, but I, something that you said a lot that I've been thinking of, thinking about a lot is this idea of zero sum and how that really harms so many people. 
and I've talked about it in a previous podcast, but there's a great book I'm still reading called Heather McGee's Some of Us. And so she talks about um, yes. how this idea of zero sum and like the idea of like, you know, when you like for a while I can tell, I can talk to men and say like how patriarchy not just hurts women, but hurts mm-hmm. men. Like that was an easy like line for me to draw. And I had, I knew it's true, but I had a harder time drawing the line between like, how does anti-blackness, how does white supremacy actually hurt white people? And this book does a great job of it because, you know, the way, uh, the structures of white, white supremacy has harmed black and brown folks is, is just a precursor to the way it harms white people, especially those with less, uh, means, right? And definitely economically, you know, socially status. But, because of zero sum, people some tend to vote for the things that actually harms them, right? Or they tend to back the player that actually like doesn't care about them, and it's it's a lot of that. I think, Mari, you talked about like hurt people hurt people, and there's this also this feeling of zero sum where we, there's not enough space for everyone's trauma. So if someone like has to like talk about their trauma, then it means that other people's trauma is lessened, which is not true at all, right? There's space for all. It's just a weird thing to say. There's space for all our trauma, but there is. And no one should feel like attention for Black Lives Matter doesn't mean that Asian Americans have not been harmed, that like Native Americans have not been erased. Um, and then when Asian for Black Lives, uh, when the API, the Asian anti-Asian hate crimes spike, it doesn't mean that, you know, Black Lives do not matter. Like, it's just like a weird thing that people are like, well, we don't have attention span for all these. So we just have to pick one. And there's, you know, that's the, the harm of the zero sum. Um, just a couple things I just want to say before a couple thoughts I've had as you were all, all t- talking was one, I love Betty Fujikato, who is also a member of the, uh, with uh, Mari and the Osei's team. Um, Betty is uh, someone I've known for a long time through Ultimate Frisbee. It's an <laughs> Ultimate Frisbee mom. So shout out to Betty. Uh, the power of stories too is such a, in art, like the whole idea of belonging and the thing that's, that I'm working on, the thing that we do the podcast with, the way we want to convene people. It's because we do believe that when we meet to solve problems in a transactional mindset just to get things done, to have an agenda, to be productive, to, people don't have enough time, we lose the humanity and their connection. And if we can actually now over-index on like the relationships that people have with each other, then we can actually solve problems in a much more powerful way because people are more willing to put skin in the game, over-commit, over help out in a way that doesn't feel transactional. It actually feels like you're invested in it. And this idea of shared prosperity that we're trying to really, we're trying to help Seattle change their narrative, right? Like, what is our narrative? And I think our narrative should be something that Coast Salish people have always known. Like, there's enough resources here for everyone. We just have to steward it properly. We have to work together on it. And King County is incredibly rich, right? Like, we have so many resources, not just money and wealth, which we have plenty of, but talent, uh, logistics, uh, networks. Uh, communities, you know, like assets. And we just, because of zero sum, because of scarcity mindset, because we don't have a, a shared narrative, we don't believe that we're on the same team, that we actually can help each other survive and thrive. And that's the whole idea of the podcast. That's the whole idea of Civic Commons. Um, and, you know, and we all need our 90 seconds to be mad. And I think I've taken more than my share of 90 <laughs> seconds to be mad for sure. I'm sure we all have, but, uh, when that clears, we need to have space for anger is one thing that I want to make sure that we know. But once the anger dissipates a little bit, how do we create a, a multiracial, multiethnic coalition that actually serves all of us, right? Not just people of color, but white folks as well. Because white folks don't have it good 
perfectly either, right? Health indexes, education indexes, like this is bad for everyone. And so how do we create this country, which is this great social project? And this is like this, uh, this, this experiment and make it successful. And I think it's by having conversations, slowing down, um, and talking to each other is a big part of it. So that's why we have the podcast. And that's why I, I thank you both for joining. Um, this is really great. I wish uh, we were supposed to have another guest, uh, Yoon Kang O'Higgins. So I want to shout out to Yoon. Uh, Yoon had some medical issues come up. Nothing harmful in terms of she's okay. She just can't get out of bed. So shout out to Yoon. Uh, hopefully one day we'll have Yoon back on the podcast for another uh, episode. Super involved in the arts. So I'm sure we'll find an arts uh, path for Yoon. But I want to thank my guests for coming today. Uh, thank you for your time. I know time is such a resource. Uh, an incredibly valuable resource and that you took time to tell your stories, to connect is something that I really appreciate uh, so much for. So to our guests, uh, thank you all to uh, the big phony who does all our intro outro music. I appreciate you for letting us use your music royalty free. And uh, just remember y'all just build bridges. Don't break bridges. And remember that we all belong here. <laughs>